0: Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Real estate is the go-to dinner conversation for so many Canadians these days, and for good reason. Baby boomers talk about helping out their kids with their down payments. People in their 30s and 40s lament the massive mortgages they carry. And people in their 20s, well, they're asking if they'll ever be able to own a home. Does Canada have a housing crisis, an affordability crisis, and what's to be done with it? gary Marr was a reporter with the financial post for almost 20 years he's now the canada reporter for CoStar news the news division of the world's largest real estate data provider he joins us now to break it all down hey gary great to have you hey thanks for having me on the show you know what there's there's always so much talk about housing questions is there a crisis is is there a bubble is a bubble gonna burst and you know it's become a perennial thing i know you were saying you've been pretty much talking about the, these very questions for for years of your career
1: oh yeah i mean you know that's the most to be having covered real estate for almost 25 years we have been talking about a bubble and predictions about a bubble for the whole period i mean you go back to the 90 1995 you know real estate crash that was mostly in ontario then it came up in 98 and since 98 what have we had 10 percent pullbacks pretty negligible. And, you know, the real estate industry has used that to say, you know, real estate's a great investment. Leverage it, buy a home. And people have bought into that that dream and you can't really blame them when, when they see the results right now. So, now we're at a question of are we in a bubble? And it's been asked so many times, but one of the things I always look for beyond, you know, the heads is some of these prices relative to and this is where the speculation comes in, relative to the income you can produce from real estate. They don't make any sense. Like you can go into a place like Toronto, or even Vancouver, and you can rent an apartment, or I mean, a house for a cheaper for cheaper than you would buy it. I mean, it's just then then, then financing it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and you could invest that money in the market. So, but people are still buying houses because they believe it will outpace the market.
0: Well, is it, is it that? I mean, it's also it's obviously that to a degree, but is it also just this traditional idea of what home ownership means, bricks and mortar, this is my home, you can't take it away from me, this is where I'm raising my family, even if I can get 3 or 4% better percent over in, in this ETF?
1: Yeah, for qu- no question you're right about that. I won't argue with that. I mean, you know, housing policy in Canada, we are a country with home ownership rates about 70%. The housing dream—it's—it's it's, you know—it's embedded in our DNA. It's interesting. It's south of the border, the crash there. It, it pulled back. It, it, it pulled that dream out a little bit, right? And and they don't have that that thing same thought. But one of the reasons, if you have kids or you want to raise a family, and one of the reasons you have to have a house is we just don't have a stock of of housing that fits rental. Mm. So really, you you almost have no real choice but to own a house, if you want to raise a family, you want the stability of tenure in your house, because you don't want to rent a place and then be kicked out of it because, you know, you found the perfect house and the owner now wants to move into it. You've got that risk factor. So that's why people buy houses, I think, because they want a backyard, they want a place to live, and, and it is a great way to forcefully save money. There's no arguing with that. I mean, people put money into their house, into their principal, that would a lot of times it would burn a hole in their pocket if they if even if they saved it on rent somehow it would
0: be spent okay is the bubble going to burst is there a bubble that's a perennial question here's another perennial question i'm going to put to you do we have a housing crisis in canada right now
1: well i mean you know the summer is about to start and people are going to be living in parks again maybe so that would be point one that there's you know you wonder about how much housing there is i think one of the issues on housing is when we talk about affordability crisis, we have to ask ourselves, you know, are we commingling things, affordability for people who could afford it in supermarkets super, in certain markets or people who were never going to be able to afford a house because they've got other challenges in their life. So we have to draw something about that. And we also have to ask a fundamental question about, you know when we talk about affordability, especially now that we're seeing more remote work and people willing to live out in suburbs, does affordability mean affordability in Toronto? Do I have to live in Toronto? Do I have to live in, in, in Vancouver? Or does affordability mean, you know, can I afford a house in Sarnia or Vernon, BC or, you know, Kamloops? Like, how are we going to define affordability? Where Do you have any sort of implicit right to live in the city of Toronto or Vancouver? Or, you know, I mean, there's a great city where there's still pretty good pricing. It's called Montreal. And there's also a great city called Calgary where people could move to right now and find some phenomenal pricing and a lot of people don't want to do that well well, even in toronto
0: where i am i mean i know there's a there's a lot of young people a lot of people in their 30s a lot of people in their 20s who talk about i can't ever imagine owning a home but they are for lack of a better term downtown elites they may not be wealthy elites but sort of culturally they think of themselves as as downtown elites and they only ever look at the condo listings for downtown whereas if you go to northeast scarborough like yeah guys you you can actually afford that condo more but but they would never consider that is that a part of the equation here
1: I think for sure it's part of the equation. I think, um, you know, you could move out to Ajax. Now, I will say, in defense of those, a lot of this will have to refer to the nature of work and, and how jobs go in the next five years, you know, post-pandemic, if we're into that period. But uh, we have seen prices sort of skyrocket in the exurbs too, right? The Even the suburbs, but also beyond the suburbs, we're seeing prices skyrocket. So these are also there's definitely affordability challenges increasing even in around Toronto and you look at a place like Burlington and you know Burlington is a lovely city on the water but boy it's not it's not particularly cheap anymore I mean Hamilton Burlington areas prices went up 21% but the average price is about $750,000 in Hamilton Burlington so a couple could probably get into the market there certainly a lot easier than they get into the market in the downtown toronto market where you could be paying fourteen hundred dollars a square foot for a condo
0: gary should we be better seizing the work from home moment right now because one of the things i find interesting is is we found that yes people can work from home by and large depending on their job uh for the past two years and it's fine now we find that there are particularly governments i I think toronto city hall and, and i think ontario public servants they've been mandated to return to work a certain number of days a week beginning on a certain day. And I find it kind of interesting because I've always, I don't want to get into the whole pandemic conversation, but I've been sort of opposed to rigid mandates in many respects. I wasn't crazy about uh, many of the lockdown measures, but at the same time, I'm also not crazy about, look, if someone wants to stay home for whatever reason, either because they're still COVID worried or or other reasons, I don't see the problem. Why can't we just let them uh, work from home if it's proven fine in the past? And yet governments now seem to be pushing uh, for a return to the office.
1: Well, I think there's no question they're pushing for a return to office because it's good for their tax dollars, their tax base, and our economies. And right. it will be a rough transformation, you know, to go away from that. Not to mention the people who own these office towers are some of our biggest pension funds. Mm. They're important investors. You know, you know, right now office towers haven't really declined in value a lot. They've had some decline. Can you imagine what those office towers will look like if you know, on renewal they're fifty percent. It'll they'll look like Calgary. You want to know what they'll look like? There's a city out west.
0: And, and you know, it's <laughs> you funny. Know, it's Toronto that, Mayor John Tory has pretty much acknowledged that one of the reasons he wanted to mandate a return to the office was because there's all these underground shopping malls that are only ever used uh, by the nine to five workforce who comes in into the city. So that's a part of the factor there. But then again, you were previously we were previously complaining about traffic issues. Got to build more subways, more highways. The many billions of dollars attached to that. A certain degree of telework changes all of that it changes those policies it changes the housing issues we're talking about so i wonder can we not find a more sort of middle ground here
1: i think we are i think what's interesting is the market is actually doing that to a Mm. degree right now like what, what what you're seeing is the nature of work and obviously this was created through you know a pandemic which was government regulated and i'm not gonna you know get into an argument about that but the point is it's happened, people have moved to the suburbs and it's happened at the same time, or even the exurbs, and it's happened at the same time that real estate, certain types of real estate, maybe not office, but if you look at something like warehouses and e-commerce, like you wanna talk about something that's gone up in value like crazy, it's it's all that stuff. And what's happened is those places need those places need workers, right? So you can't really locate your warehouse to Brantford if you don't have anybody to work to it, work in it. Do you? So that's why suddenly, you know, your warehouse is now in Brantford, Ontario, where prices are cheaper and you were reluctant to go out there because you might not find the workers. But now suddenly the wage you're offering that warehouse, it looks it looks a lot more competitive to the person living in the house there than it would in in um, in downtown, maybe not downtown Toronto, but even in Scarborough. You know, if you if you have a job at an Amazon warehouse in Scarborough, I mean maybe you can commute in but you're probably living in scarborough so that's going to be very expensive place to live and have that job
0: one of the things that's interesting even about the phrase housing crisis and you alluded to it when you're talking about people sleeping in parks is there are anti-poverty activists who use the phrase housing crisis meaning there are people who are sleeping out on the streets there are people who literally can't afford any roof over their heads. And then the other usage of the phrase housing crisis is more affordability crisis. Uh, You know, 25 year olds, maybe they're a married couple. They're both working. uh, The total household income is six figures, but they go, I can't see myself actually getting on a track of home ownership. So we're talking about uh, very different things that would come with very different policy toolkits in response.
1: Yeah, they're two completely different issues. They're not. I mean, we know that we know that young people are living at home in record numbers like people under 30 it's i think i saw a number it was closer to 40 percent The the head of um, the largest landlord in in the country was just on a conference call saying these people haven't moved back out of their house well they're not going to move back out of they're not going to move out of their house to go live in a park we know that right (laughs) you know they're going to stay with mom and dad and they probably don't want to retire with mom and dad so if there's a i don't know how you define that the language but the point is they don't want to i don't know about you but i never wanted to live at home with my mother and father into my 30s so i don't know too many people who want to do that i don't know too many kids who want to do that you're not even a kid at 30 so so the issue is those people that that is a problem like so a thirty year old does not want to live at home with his parents. It's probably not healthy. They're starting later on household formation because they can't hold because they can't own a house so that's that's a problem right now and uh, they bought into a we've done a bunch of things to help them buy into that where where we're increasing r s p contribute you know the amount you can contribute from an r s p we've 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 li- lifted that up We're telling people to raid their retirement savings. To buy a house. So we're doing a lot of things that, you know, I don't know that are really gonna increase the supply of housing as much as their demand side tools. I mean we we, we keep imposing demand side tools on a market that probably needs a lot more supply, especially if we're to believe the immigration numbers that are being promised now. You know, a half a million immigrants a year. I think it was brought up by the same landlord at one of the largest real estate investment trusts. Sure, I have 100. Half a half a million people come to this country, but you got to have a place to house. them.
0: Well, you just opened several can of worms there. and I want to break them all down in greater detail, obviously talking about these policy toolkits, uh, how immigration affects all of this and also uh, development land. Uh, growth of, of where we're actually building housing. Uh, let's just go back to some of those policy toolkits for a moment, because to your point, it's almost like every year there's a new announcement from from a provincial government, from Justin Trudeau, whoever saying, here's how we're tinkering with CMHC rules or RASP rules, or here's some grant to incentivize your purchase. And I think there are some people who are maybe getting a boost into home, home ownership because of that. There's others who are maybe just going to see themselves further into debt that they shouldn't be in. And is this not only also just increasing the competition and upping the bidding wars?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's inflationary. Like, I, I don't. If, right. if, I mean, I don't have an economics degree. I admit that. But if you're just not increasing the supply, and we are increasing the supply, let's be clear. There, there have been moves and uh, there have been increases in supply. It is happening, and it is happening on the rental market, and we're seeing that. But if you're telling people. You know, you used to be able to take 25000 out of your RSP. Now you can take 35000 and you can repay it over 15 years. I mean, I, I forget when that happened. A few years, I think it was on the Liberals, but a few years ago that happened. And like, what does that do? It gives you more money on the table, but everybody else has the same option, right? And so that's going to be inflationary. And I think all the things that are happening now are generally inflationary. And we haven't even talked about, you know, the whole... Bank of Mon Dad, and how much that is contributing to inflationary prices in
0: housing. Well, yeah, let's talk about that because there are so many people out there who are getting their inheritance early or getting an early down payment on it. Here's a hundred grand, two hundred, five hundred thousand dollars from mom and dad, which they feel it's a necessity. I mean, it wouldn't be happening if they didn't need the money at the same time. If you're someone who can get that from mom and dad, that's great. But then that whole cohort of people is so greatly advantaged over those who just don't have that money from mom and dad. I mean, they've they've lost those bidding wars.
1: Without question, that's happening. It's actually interesting because I was listening to a um, presentation by uh, CIBC economist on this. He says it's actually the, the bank of grandma and grandpa in some ways right now because that's where the money is. And the, by the time the parents are getting it, they're almost too old to spend it. But the issue with sort of limiting that, and I don't even know what that would really look like, is, you know, who's to say what a parent should... Um, you know, want to support their kid, want to help their kid. I mean, maybe that's a reason why I'm still working and maybe I don't work. And maybe there's a larger macro effect if I stop working because I'm looking to uh, support my kid in their, in their ownership. And, you know, I also question whether some of the, we've seen an uptick of investment property supposedly in the marketplace. And I guess I would wonder how much of that is second houses where people are are helping their children. Uh-huh. And, and I I don't know I mean I don't know how that number breaks down but I I do think you're going to tell people they can't save for kid for um, for their children it's one of the existential questions for parents in the market right now I think is if you're in Toronto is and you hear it all the time from anybody in a certain age bracket is do I have to save money for kids and I'm kind of wondering maybe we should change the it's just a thought but right now we have children you know, emptying the RSP, maybe there should be a housing savings plan like there is for the RESP for your children. Hmm. And then everybody can participate in and do a degree. And, you know, again, it's another it's another demand side tool as opposed to supply. That- but it's
0: an interesting point. If you have a lever to allow uh, the RSP or, or an RESP even to revert to a home purchase, then why not just create the vehicle for what you intended for?
1: yeah I I think so like I think the idea of withdrawing from your RSP to pay for a house I really wonder about the impact of that on people's retirement savings like we've we've created a culture right now that your retirement is your house right yeah. like how like, like totally in no world should your net worth be 50 percent for some people it might be 75 percent of their net worth might be in their house it it, it, it violates probably the single most important, investment rule is not to put all your eggs in one basket Mm. right like it is a number one rule and that's what we're all doing and then at the same time which after we've told everybody to do this which is interesting you know there's all this talk that hey we're going to tax it now like i mean if you talk and i don't know whether that's going to happen or not but can you imagine the idea that for the last 20 years we've told people to pump money into their houses and now we're going to tax it i mean (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's just wild. It would be I mean, an incredible turnaround if that The happens. political
0: outrage on, on something like that would be immense. I mean, Gary, what's your sense of how many... Uh, persons out there in the baby boomers cohort and other older Canadians who were like, yeah, the original idea of retirement, you know, I, I downsize, I, I sell the four bedroom detached property and move into the condo or what have you so I can tour the world or so I can go to the more expensive g- golf courses I want to check out or whatever it is. And then they're like, oh, actually what it is is I'm downsizing so I can take that extra 400K, 500K and split it amongst months by two kids for them to buy a property. I mean, that is a major change in what you thought your life arc would be
1: for sure that is uh that is question but also you know we've seen some people inheriting wealth in their in their boomer years in like 60s 70s or buying bigger houses we never saw it would be that and we're we do. there is more debt for people over 60 than there has ever been uh, that there's been numerous really on that. like g- yeah, general mortgage more, debt. more mortgage debt yeah because they're helping kids And it makes sense. Like if let's say you have, I mean, your kids are going to inherit it anyways. Let's say you lived in Midtown, Toronto, you bought your house a gazillion years for, I don't know, 300,000. It's now worth 2.5 million. You know, you're probably going to give at least half. You're probably going to not spend all that money. Right. So, I mean, what's the point of giving it to them 500,000 now versus later? I mean, especially, especially if you can keep your job and continue to pay it down or work on a you know, uh, on some sort of basis where you work three days a week. I mean, a lot of that adds up for uh, adults. But you're right, it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a betrayal in that you thought you'd be done and you'd be traveling the world. Well,
0: it's the new life plan too, in that I certainly, so my kids are under 10. Uh, so we're nowhere near, we're not near them going to university. We're certainly nowhere near them buying a home. But at the same time, not only do I think, oh yeah, I got to do the R S P contribution, which I do, but we also have those conversations about, about helping them with the home. And we're like, well, hold on a second. Okay. If you've got, you know, if you've got two kids, I mean, what's inflation adjusted? I don't know, but that's a hundred grand. It's not just one. Okay. 200 grand. Okay. I need 200 K to help out the kids all right, three kids, all right, I need 300. How do we do this equitably? What's fair and everything? It's it's quite something to even be grappling with when, when your kids are young.
1: And, you know, the, the reality is the market might solve some of this. Your mm. kids could end up moving to Sarnia and or wherever, or London, Ontario, and you're actually seeing condos that are targeting older people because they want to be near where their kids have moved out to. That's certainly happening in the suburbs. In the suburbs, we have seen condos built and they're built for... Um, I, I don't know where you call quasi retirement, people downsizing. That is a market that exists out in the suburbs.
0: We'll be back in just a moment with more full comment after these messages gary mar let's talk a bit about the immigration component that you were discussing you you know the headline item for immigration we often think about uh, welcoming in refugees as we're talking about doing from ukraine the the last intake of syrian refugees but when it comes to the actual regular annual volume of refugees most of them are economic pardon me not refugees immigrants most of the volume is the economic class of immigrants people who who have good uh education And they bring money with them. They bring equity with them. And that plays a role in what's going on in our housing numbers.
1: I think that's I think that's for sure. I mean, well, you know, you hear this anecdotally from realtors about students who are buying houses, their parents are buying the house for them while they go to school in Toronto. And the immigration numbers, there's absolutely no way that they cannot have an impact on on demand. And that doesn't even include, you know, I think seasonal temporary workers like who are you know they're not you know picking tobacco always and, and They're some of them are very high skilled and they're going to um, consume some of the housing uh, that is out there whether it's high in rental whether it's buying it and that's a factor like one of the great problems in this federation this great federation that we have is is the federal government controls the demand side of the equation through interest rates and through um, you know immigration and the provinces and cities control the supply side. It's, it's been, you know, that is the conundrum that continues to exist in the Canadian housing market, which can only be overcome by, you know, governments, you know, of many different political stripes
0: working together, I think. Where do we go on the immigration file vis-a-vis its impacts on real estate?
1: Well, I think you need to build more real estate or reduce immigration, one or the other, but reducing immigration you know, that is a uh, toxic concept, right? We, we've seen that. It is a toxic dis- discussion. And most people, you know, I, I'm not going to say what CEOs told me to do this, but he said to me, you know, Canadians are for immigration as long as it's not in their neighborhood because mm. they don't want any more density.
0: <laughs> and is that the issue? Is it density? Because we talk about whether we build up or whether we build out. In the GTA, there's big controversy around what's called the green belt. There's areas where they say absolutely not a single further uh, acre, hectare of, of development going on. Lots of tensions with developers in terms of where they want to head. I mean, is it? What's the answer to that continual uh, headache that that people debate over? Well,
1: density has to be
0: part of the discussion. There's little question
1: about it and you know i know even with on a street like young street you go you go up and down young street which is our main thoroughfare in toronto and you do see density building around some around places like eglinton and other stops but a lot of young street think of how many two-story buildings there are in young street Good point you know there's a couple of part a couple apartments in a top like how many of those things could be four or six like you know you can chip away at a lot of uh, density all over the city right started you know you can do it right away but one of the problems and i hear this from developers and yeah i'm not gonna be on the development developer side on everything but they do say the process of uh of getting these things approved is is time consuming and it costs money to do all this stuff and that is also
0: inflationary what role is inflation playing in these challenges right now? We all know those stories of someone who, at the very beginning of the pandemic, said, All right, I'm doing the addition on the house. I mean, I'm not allowed to go anywhere, so might as well do this, or I'm going to build the deck. And then they get it costed out six months later. The contractor says, Oh, oh by the way, the price of lumber has gone up by a third, or it's doubled, or what have you. What, what is that doing to the broader real estate sector?
1: Oh, I think for sure it's raised prices. And i you raised a great point. I kind of wonder whether post pandemic, that um, some of this will uh, will pull back a little bit. I was uh, I was actually talking to somebody about uh, cottage rentals just recently. And, you know the cottage market. Oh, good boom, luck like with renting way. a
0: cottage in Ontario. Yeah.
1: Well, w- what I was told is some of that isn't as strong as last year because people are starting to think about vacationing for for real this okay, summer, yeah. like going to Europe, going to other places. That we might actually I would not call it a correction by any stretch of the imagination, but it. There was no competition for a cottage last year. If you wanted to go to a cottage with your kids, right? You were up against everybody else. And what? What else were you going to do for two weeks of your summer? You you weren't even going to go. You couldn't even cross the border without hassles. So where were you? Couldn't go to Europe. But, so where were you going to go? Cottages. Everybody wanted to go to cottages, and it, you know, it, it it. And then you know that dovetails into people deciding, hey, maybe I'll buy one. So, but as you can sort of take. Big trips and consider other things. Maybe you know, maybe even buy a summer property across the border. Who knows? But uh, I think that should have that could relieve some pressure on that on that vacation ownership
0: market. Gary, let's talk about interest rates for a bit here. I I have certainly had those experiences where I talk about, oh, I can't believe I signed on to the three point eight mortgage. Oh, I got to get it, you know, back to two point eight percent. And then the baby boomers in the room say, "Gather around children. I shall tell you a story of." 1990, what have you? 18% one time I had a mortgage term with all of that. How privileged are we in this situation where being at a 2% interest rate and then being told, oh, you're going to go up 25 basis points uh, next time the Bank of Canada makes announcement, oh no, run for the hills, rates are rising. But compared to then, no, they're not. What's the real take on what's happening with interest rates now?
1: well i think you know i, I would call it privilege because you, you know that translates into higher prices but the problem with interest rates is you know the average consumer thinks what's my monthly payment they do that with a car right. they do that with a house so you know if you can carry it at a two point you know at a two, and, and you qualify based on that too the qualifying rate if it goes down that you know and they the government tries to make you qualify at higher rates and they fool around with that. And you know they've done so many things to make it more affordable. I remember at one point when I was covering real estate they allowed you to amortize a mortgage over 40 years right. to try to lower the monthly payment. Now it's 25. But the point is I think I think consumers are used to that because it lowers their monthly payment. So as it goes up and and I you know I remember when I my first house I got a 565 mortgage and I think I thought that was the deal of the century, right? Because we you know we come out of the 90s and everybody thought it was great. So I, th- I think rates will go up, and uh, they can only go up. I think so much until, yeah, that will have a detrimental effect on af- on affordability. Maybe not as much as people think, though, because of if we go back to what we were talking about with the, you know, the bank of mom and dad or grandpa and grandma. If you're buying a two million dollar house, and you know you just got a million bucks for it, that's a, you know that's a, mil- a mil- the, you know the payments on a million dollar mortgage. Are not going to be the same as a 1.6 million dollar mortgage if you just got your, you know your, you know your 20 percent down to avoid CMHC uh, insurance. So that would be a factor. Plus, it'll take time. I think it'll also take time to have an impact because Canadians, we're a fairly conservative lot in this country, and we like to have a five year. We love the five year mortgage, right? Which is which means you know you don't you set a rate every five years and you don't worry about it. And I think half of the market or so. Is locked in for five years, and we don't lock in generally like the Americans for these long-term rates. So, you know, a certain amount of that market is going to roll over, and that could affect the uh, housing market. I think,
0: uh, Gary, I want to have a little bit of fun here for a moment and talk about the the real estate glamour and glitz market and and world that I think ha- has become much more prevalent in recent years. We talk about foodie culture and how the food network and what we call food porn has created, has changed the general public's interest in the culinary world. I think there's something similar going on with the real estate world. I, I gotta be honest, it's a thing that I, I'm really into. I don't watch much reality television. I watch the, the real estate shows though. I love the million dollar listing program. I read the books. My sort of trash reading is, I, I've written books on an entire, just one building. You know, the story of building one Manhattan uh, building and all the different residents who tried to build the units and so forth. I'm just so into that stuff. To what degree is that just a sidebar, and that's just you know leisure media consumption? And, and to what degree does that play a role in in how we how we buy homes, how we build them? Even something like like staging was just not as prevalent, uh, you know, decades ago as it is now.
1: Oh, I, I think you're onto something for sure there, and it's not just real estate. I mean, social media is bragging rights, you know, and and shows are and they encourage it in shows, I mean, how many times do you see on your, you know, on your Facebook feed or Twitter, hey, look, there's a house in my neighborhood for sale. And it's some reverse way of showing how much uh, housing prices are in your neighborhood. And people like to show renovation. There's, um, I think there's something, you know, about about, about uh, media consumption, and I'm not blaming the media by any stretch, that is bragging rights and bragging rights means you'll pay more for something. Right. I mean, it, it, housing is part of that. It's like, you know, why did you pay $500 to go to a, a Raptors game in the playoffs? Why? Because I just posted a picture saying, here I am at the Raptors game, right? It's part of the value You of way to extract some value out of, out of that. And I think a way to extract value out of housing is, um, is because you get to brag about it to a degree on, in your in your world and and we're encouraged all these shows that you're talking about and i like them too who doesn't like them they you know they're like watching lotteries you know they're like imagining winning the lottery or something and they 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 feed on that it's like oh god i'd love to have that i'd love to have that house in the hills of, of, of l.a i mean or you know on the waterfront in That's you know, it feeds on our dreams. You know
0: what I don't get, Gary? I don't get the House Hunters thing. And I have friends who who watch the House Hunters nonstop every episode. I only do the glamour stuff because my attitude is, you know, you watch these House Hunters episodes and they're like, will Stacey take the one bedroom, 1. 1.5 bathroom, or will she take the one bedroom? with den and the balcony that overlooks nothing. I'm always like, these are like, these units, you need to be able to dream watching these things. Some of the House Hunter stuff, I'm always like, who's interested in this? This is like my regular life. Take me away from my regular life. There should be some escapism.
1: Although we love those stories of, you know what stories people love is, Look at this piece of junk that sold for a million dollars. <laughs> like I used to get the most clicks on and they're always for the land, right? You know the story I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. Oh, this tiny house in downtown Toronto sold for, you know, ten million dollars. Well, yeah, because they're not buying the tiny house, you're buying all the property. You're buying the right to build a condo there, right? But people love that story. They there's a certain, I guess, I don't know uh triumph i don't know if you there's you feel triumph of, of just looking at this thing what a fool who would pay a million dollars for that and, and people love those stories
0: maybe it's healthier at least because real estate is an asset you know it's 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 buying something that can increase in value the the car junkies or that i like to buy the expensive clothes and so forth we we can at least poo them and say, ah you're, you're buying depreciating things but no my my interest in glamour real estate at least i can say it's my retirement savings
1: it's true. I mean, it's, I will say though, I mean, there's a real, the land appreciates, Doesn't real, I, I always say, if you're going to buy a house, you could buy it and you're buying, you know, something brand new, you're buying it to consume it. Because most, the minute you redo, you know, they'll tell you, build a kitchen, it'll make your house worth more. Not really, because by the time you sell it, your kitchen's 10 years old, right? And it's out of style. I think you, I think you're buying to, cons- real estate's an odd thing because it does go up in value. It's a great place to, to to it's a great way to save your money but it's also this consumable product mm. that you will consume
0: over over the lifetime of the house Gary before we go i i get the sense that you're not you're not optimistic that everything is going to be great for the home buyer moving forward but you're not all doom and gloom those those people and generations of people who are hanging their heads going oh no what's what's going to happen because you're seeing the negatives but you're also seeing uh the potential for optimism some positives around the corner what's your outlook for the next 10 20 years what's your outlook for for a young person saying you know here I am looking to be in the market I
1: think people at the policy level are finally starting to get it maybe I'm just feeling optimistic but I actually think pol- people at the policy level finally realized we need to build more supply and there's a big push on to build more supply, more rental housing, more, you know, you know, more uh, whatever you want to call it, affordable housing, more housing that fits the market. And I also believe the market is surprisingly how efficient the market is, that people are now, you know, moving to places that are more affordable, creating lives. I mean, you go to some of these towns and, you know, last summer I was in Cornwall. Believe it or not, I was going to the East Coast, and uh, we stopped in Cornwall. It's got a funky little downtown that would look like it was a lot of fun. It wouldn't be that; it would be a nice place to live if you could have a decent job there. And I, I think that's kind of something that the consumer and the market has figured out that maybe we can find some great places to live in this country that aren't named Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton,
0: Calgary, or Ottawa. The future is friendly if you're willing to look around just a little bit. Gary Marr, this has been a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for stopping by. Okay, thanks. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.